Glad you're here with us. We've been in the Gospel of Mark as we've opened our our series looking at this great Gospel that begins with these important words that this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus as proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah. And we looked at last time that the Gospel message is a picture of the enthronement and kingship, the rule of Jesus as King over all heaven and earth. And so we saw then that Mark now is presenting this gospel as the beginning of this good news concerning Jesus as the King, that He is the Christ, the Son of God. And then we noticed also that verses 2 and 3 describe this voice in the wilderness who is crying out this need to prepare the way of the Lord. And now Mark turns his attention to this individual. And so this morning we're going to look at John and the role that he had and the message that he proclaimed. Because Mark spends a a little bit of time on looking at John and his role is critical in leading up to the arrival of Jesus. You'll notice the descriptions found there in verse 4 and it says that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. It's interesting what John is doing here as the scene opens, that John appears in the wilderness. He's baptizing and proclaiming then this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This fits exactly what verses 2 and 3 described as three passages that this gospel quotes. Well, all three of those were preparations and warning for the people to get ready for the coming of the Lord, to prepare for the Lord who's going to make this grand entrance and bring this arrival into the land that was promised. Here is this imagery coming out again that this is exactly what John has come to do. John has come to proclaim a message of the forgiveness of sins, calling people to repentance, calling people to refine their hearts, to get ready because the Lord is going to arrive. Now the thing that can be, I think, somewhat of a struggle, yet I think is important to observe, is notice that this picture that's given to us about what the people are doing is not some kind of ritualistic, Oh, here, there's this guy in the wilderness named John and he's preaching repentance. We should all go get baptized. You know, that's not the idea of what's going on. The idea here is a picture of John proclaiming the Lord is about to come. The Lord is arriving and you need to be ready. You need to get your hearts ready. You need to turn from sins and you need to prepare the way of the Lord for his arrival. Everybody needs to be cleansed of their defilements. Hearts need to be made right before God before He appears. This is the imagery of what John then is doing as he's proclaiming this message is that they are recognizing their need for cleansing. They are going to John because John is saying, you need to get ready for the Lord's coming. And these are the people who recognize, yes, we do need cleansing. We do need to be washed of our sins. We do need to get ready for the Lord's arrival. 
We do have a problem before God that needs to be dealt with. This is what John is doing, is telling people you need to get ready. I submit to you that what you see them doing and what John is proclaiming is this idea of the necessity of a transformed heart. That's the idea of repentance. Sometimes we kind of make repentance and baptism these uh, strange externals are like, okay, just turn from sin and, and be baptized. Repentance is the idea of a transformation of heart. This change of mind. That This is not just simply, oh, okay, I'll do better. But people who are hearing this message of God is coming. The King is about to arrive. And your condition before God is not good. And you need to get your heart ready. It needs to be changed. It needs to be transformed. The way that you are going in your life presently is not going to work when the Lord comes. You need to change your ways. You need to change your heart. And this is what John is proclaiming. This transformation of lives. This is what repentance is all about. And thus, if we are listening to the call of the need for transformation, baptism then is the necessary conclusion or result to that. Is I recognize that I have not lived my life right before God. That I have not been doing what God has told me to do. That I am full of sins. And that I need to turn toward God and have my sins dealt with. Too often baptism is pictured as if it's the goal, but baptism is the result of a heart that is changed for God. A heart that is convicted by sin. A heart that recognizes I am woefully lost before God and I am in need of cleansing. I am in need of forgiveness. This is what these people are hearing and doing is what they are doing is acknowledging that there is disobedience in their lives and they need to be cleansed. What an amazing scene it is there. That verse 4 and verse 5 picture. All these people who are leaving Jerusalem, leaving the city, these people in the countryside, and here they are, and they're all coming to John, and they're all now recognizing their sins before God, they're repenting of their sins, and they're being baptized in that process. I want you to see that one of the big ideas that Mark is going to deal with, it's really one of the big themes of the Bible, is that sin is always pictured as the fundamental human problem. The big problem is not ignorance. The the big problem is not our, our inherent imperfection. You know, we're just humans. The big problem is our active rebellion against God. Notice that's what's presented as John is going to proclaim. John's opening message is, you need to get right with God. You need to get ready for His arrival. That every single human has a problem before God. It is a sin problem. That is the issue that lies with us before God. It's not the other things. It is a sin problem. 
And thus their coming out here in baptism is not some kind of, well, okay, I just need to be baptized, kind of mindless. Let's just get this over with so I can feel better about my life. But these are people who are convicted by their sinfulness. They are confessing their sins and they are submitting to baptism because they realize that sin is the problem. That's what they're doing. It's not some kind of sacramental, oh, John's saying we should get baptized. I guess we should do that. You know, okay, now, all right, we're all been baptized. Back to life like normal. You are witnessing people who understand the gravity of sin. And thus it says they are going out there in verse 5, confessing their sins. They recognize their disobedience. They recognize that they need forgiveness. And that's what this idea is all about and what, why you would read that the Gospels call that John's message was a message of repentance. You know, some people get kind of weird about that. Repentance leads to the baptism. We've got to get hearts right. It's not about getting out there and saying, everybody get in the water now. No, it's a message of, you better get your heart right before God before it's too late. You need to get your life right. You need to turn direction. You have a sin problem that needs to be dealt with. That's the proclamation. And the response to that proclamation is accepting our sin problem, turning from that sin problem, confessing the sin problem, and then being washed of the sin problem. That's what they're doing. That's the proclamations being given is repentance is everything. We can't skip over things and just jump to, okay, get baptized. John is saying, you need to get your heart right. As if there is not a change of life and a confession of sins and recognizing your sin problem and a realization that I need to get my life right with God and I need to fix this heart, you can be thrown in water all you want to and it's not going to matter. You need to get your heart right. You need to get ready for the coming of the Lord. That's what John's proclaiming. You need to get lives ready. Prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord is coming. And so baptism then is pictured even here as the result of hearts being broken by their sinfulness. They're crying out to God, desiring to be cleansed. And isn't it interesting that John's in the wilderness? This is a theme that comes up a few times in Mark's gospel. We already saw it once with the quotation in verse 3 that Isaiah uses, the voice crying in the wilderness. We may note that the wilderness in our last lesson has an image of this redemption exodus idea. Israel was in the wilderness in preparation for entering into the promised land. And so there's a positive connotation to the wilderness in that sense. Redemption is coming. All that we've hoped for is coming. And so a voice in the wilderness is telling us that time is about to arrive. But there's also a negative connotation to the wilderness, isn't there? There's a very strong negative connotation to the wilderness. When we go into the wilderness, which mainly is recorded in the book of Numbers, how's Israel doing when they're in the wilderness? 
Well, that is a major record of faithlessness. A record of rebellion. A record of sinfulness. So just as the wilderness portrays there is hope to come, it is also an admission of the present sinfulness of the nation. This is what I think is interesting about the imagery, is that the people are coming out of the city and going into the wilderness. You are admitting something. You are admitting your rebellion. You are admitting your faithlessness. This is the very essence of what repentance is supposed to look like. This is an admission of our sinfulness before God. We do not come before God and go, you know what, I am 98% great. I've got just a couple, you know, flaws here and there. And so baptism can kind of take care of that 2% where I'm off. But, you know, God thinks I'm rocking it for the other 98%. I'm killing it. I'm great. That's not being poor in spirit, as Jesus proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount. The poor in spirit are the ones who are coming before God and saying, I have nothing. I am full of sin. How many times does Jesus have to deal with that in the gospel accounts? What's the Pharisees do? What are the Pharisees doing? We're 98% awesome. We've got no problems. We're good. Why are you preaching at us? I love that contrast where you have the tax collector who will not even raise his head and just says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is what John is proclaiming. This is the heart that God desires in preparation of the arrival of the Lord. This is what is happening in this scene is People are leaving the city and leaving the countryside and they are going into the wilderness, hopeful of redemption, hopeful of salvation to come. The hopes that were given by the prophets about a savior and salvation and redemption, they're coming. But in order to receive that, there needs to be the acceptance of faithlessness and rebellion on your part. And that's what the people are doing. They come to John Confessing their sins. Admission before God. We have not been right before you. We are not living right. And we are in need of your forgiveness. You notice in verse 6, an interesting transition happens here. Verse 6 now gives us a description about John. It says that John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And you have to read that and go, now, why was that in the Bible? (laughs) Why are you supposed to read that and go, now, this is a really strange looking guy. And he eats some really strange things. I haven't yet seen, you know, of all the uh, biblical diets that have come on. I'm waiting to see the John the Baptizer diet book to come out. (laughs) Who wants to jump in on that one? Uh, locusts and wild honey. It's all you. <laughs> that is all you. Why tell us this? Why is this important to the beginning of the message of the gospel? Well, it's important for a number of, of reasons. One of the things that's interesting about what he is wearing signifies something very important about who he is. It has a reference point, first of all, way back in 2 Kings chapter 1. You have a king there of Israel named Ahaziah. And Ahaziah 
is a wicked king and one day he is walking around in the upper chambers of his of his palace and he falls through that floor to the ground and he is injured and he doesn't know if he's fatally injured or not. And so he sends messengers to go to ask some false prophets of some false gods if he's going to live or going to die. And as the messengers are going, it just so happens that Elijah, the true prophet of God, the great prophet of God, meets these messengers on the way. And he asks the messengers, well, where are you going? And they explain, well, we're going to go find out from these false gods. Of course, I don't think they're false. But from these false gods, what's going to happen to King Ahaziah? And Elijah just says, just go ahead and turn around. Let me tell you, you ain't going to make it. Go tell him that he's going to die. So the messengers go back to King Ahaziah and said, well, we were on the road and we found this fellow and he seems to be a prophet. He said that you're going to die. And King Ahaziah turns around and asks, what did he look like? And he doesn't know who this guy is. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And King Ahaziah goes, that's Elijah. I don't need to know anything else. (laughs) He's wearing hair and he's got a leather belt on. I know who that is. That's Elijah the Tishbite. In fact, this wearing of hair in Zechariah 13.4 is the description of the clothing of a prophet. So what you have put before us here in this imagery of what he's wearing is first of all, John is showing himself to number one, be a prophet. But not only is he a prophet... He looks like Elijah. He's got the hair on. He's got the belt on. Which if you remember, how does the Old Testament end? The very last words of the prophet Malachi before the Old Testament closes. And God doesn't speak another word to Israel until the arrival of John the baptizer. Are these very words. God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the end of the book. Malachi says, Elijah's going to come and he's going to turn people's hearts before the coming destruction happens. Next scene. Here's a man in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist preaching, repent. Change people's hearts before the coming destruction. This is what John is. John is representing that he is the Elijah That was prophesied. He is the great prophet that was to come. And this is his very message that the prophets themselves said was going to be. John is going to turn people's hearts, proclaiming the need for repentance before the arrival. Now, why does he eat what he eats? That's strange too, right? Why throw in the strange delicacies of locusts and wild honey? I'm in on the wild honey, maybe. (laughs) Not locusts did. In the scriptures, what you eat was often symbolic, particularly of the prophets. 
of what you were going to say. You'll see pictures like that, like Hajal in the book of Revelation. Ezekiel will do it as well. Well, they'll eat these books and they will taste certain ways and do things to their belly to indicate the kind of message they're about to proclaim. And often in the scriptures, locusts represent judgment. You see that like in Joel 1 and Revelation 9. Locusts is usually an imagery of judgments coming. So here's your negative. But honey is often pictured as the sweet taste of God's word over and over again. Psalm 19, Ezekiel 3, how sweet it is to eat the very words of God. This is what John's proclamation of the good news is going to look like. It is going to be a message that is going to be one of hope. There's going to be good words in what he says. But it's also going to be a message of judgment. In fact, the other gospel accounts will describe his message as one of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's your hope. And a baptism of fire. There's your judgment. It's a similar idea in what he's eating, is describing. His words are going to be sweet to some and they're going to be bitter to others. They're going to be words of hope as well as words of judgment. In fact, notice the very message that's described for us in verses 7 and 8. In verse 7 of Mark 1, it says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Two messages that Mark records. That John is preaching. First message. There is somebody who is coming after me. Who is so great. That I am unworthy to unstrap his sandals. Now to understand what he's saying. We have to kind of bring that into our own kind of language here. The unstrapping of a sandal on an individual was considered one of the most menial tasks an individual could do. In fact, it's even written that that was too menial for slaves to do. That's how low this idea was. Is that to unstrap one's shoe, to unstrap that sandal, was the lowest thing that you could do. To try to help that to our ears. That would be like John saying, There is one who is coming after me who is so mighty and so powerful, I'm not worthy to wash his car or clean his house or something like that. Something that we would go, oh, well, that's menial and low and nonsense. He goes, this person's so great, I can't even do that. That's how great and powerful he is. I'm not even worthy to take the strap off his sandal. One of the most menial things you could do in that society. That's how great this one is. Now, to understand why that's so stunning, Jesus will later say, there was nobody greater than John. John's the greatest prophet. In fact, the greatest person born of woman is what Jesus says. So the greatest human by natural means here, to ever walk the earth says, I'm not worthy to do the simplest, lowliest, menial task 
for this individual because that's how great he is. Is a huge declaration. That is a stunning declaration. This is Elijah the prophet, if you will, as the scriptures portray him. Preparing the way of the Lord. And yet he understands how great, how powerful, and how majestic Jesus is. He is not worthy to even do the smallest thing, the most lowly task for Jesus. And that helps us understand the second image then, the second declaration in verse 8. He says, I have baptized you with water, but this one who is mightier than I, who is greater than I, he is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, there is certainly a tendency to read phrases like that and just go, well, this means all kinds of things. And boy, off off the wall, the answers go about what the baptism of the Holy Spirit looks like. But we were told here in Mark's Gospel that this is the good news of Jesus according to the prophet Isaiah. It would be useful for us to look at, well, what did Isaiah say about this coming of the Holy Spirit that would be the expectation of these first century hearers? What does this look like? Instead of us extrapolating all kinds of ideas about what we think the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, which is what goes on in the religious world today, why don't we look back at the Scriptures and see what did that mean? I'm going to take you just to two places. We could go to a lot of others, but I'm going to just keep you in Isaiah since Mark said this is the beginning of the Gospel that Isaiah spoke about. So let's use Isaiah. Isaiah 32 and verse 12. Listen to what Isaiah says. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars, yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Now let's back up and get a sense of Isaiah. Isaiah is prophesying 700 years before the coming of Jesus. He is prophesying at a time about the sinfulness of Israel and all the sins that they've done and the coming judgment that's going to happen. He's describing their spiritual condition as well as the physical condition of the nation. And notice what's happened. The the pleasant fields are gone. They're weeping over the fruitful vine because now it's all become thorns and briars. This joyous houses no longer because now the palace is forsaken. This populous city, Jerusalem, is deserted. 
the hill and the watchtower become dens forever. Animals are living there. So the people. Joy of wild donkey. Donkey is a pasture for flocks. Israel, the great nation that God had given to them, has become nothing more than a feeding place for animals. It's desolate. It's ruined. It's broken down. It's forsaken. There's nothing to it anymore. Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And notice how everything pivots in the prophecy upon that phrase. Everything is desolate. Everything is ruined. It's all briars and thorns. It's all nothingness and sadness. Until the Spirit's poured out, then it says, then what's going to happen? The wilderness, interesting, becomes the fruitful field. And the fruitful field becomes the forest. Now justice is in the wilderness. Righteousness in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people abiding in peaceful habitations, secure dwellings and quiet resting places. Do you see the reversal language? You're being judged for your sins. Devastation, desolation, forsaken. It's all nothing. But when the Spirit is poured out... Reversal. No longer wilderness, but fruitful field. Fruitful field, forest. Now justice, now righteousness. Now living securely, now trust, now peace, now hope. When that happens, there will be God's reversal. A little bit later in Isaiah, he gives another prophecy very similar. Isaiah 44, verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I've chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I've chosen. I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Notice the similar picture that's being given here. You are this thirsty land and dry ground. But here is what God is going to do. I am going to help you. And I'm going to pour out water on the thirsty land. Just picture that metaphor. Just picture that imagery. That Israel is this parched, dry ground. It's desolate. It's nothing. There's no life. And now waters are just going to pour over that land. Pour over that water. Streams upon dry ground. God pours out His Spirit on His offspring. And notice that's the same similar connection there. My Spirit on your offspring. My blessing on your descendants. Notice descendants and offspring is the same thing. And notice pouring out the Spirit and blessings is the same thing. We've gone from none of the blessings of God and curses for sins and judgment for sins to there's a day coming where I'm going to reverse the curses. And the wilderness will be fruitful. And the dry grounds will now be watered. And I will pour out my blessings. And notice that effect. Springing up like in the, among the grasses like willows and flowing streams. But notice the big language there at the end. Is that people now start saying, I am the Lord's. I belong to Him. Written on the hand. I belong to Him. 
This picture of His people now belonging to God again. We've seen that imagery in the destruction of the temple with what happens there with the Babylonians coming in is the people have forsaken God. But when this reversal happens and the curses of sins are dealt with and God blesses again, the people will belong to God again. They will say, I am the Lord's. And they will enjoy all the blessings of the relationship with God again. This is what John's message is all about. Is that John now comes along and says, There is one who is stronger, greater, mightier than I. And when he comes, he's fulfilling all the promises of what Isaiah said. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm baptizing you with water. But something greater is coming. The great reversal is happening. The reversing of the curses of sin. The reversing of the separation between God and the people. There's going to be a restoration of being able to enjoy the blessings of God again. No longer under the judgment of sin, but now able to belong to God. That these people will be able to say, I am the Lord's. This is why you have everybody going to John in repentance. The Lord is coming and a reversal is going to happen. And we need to be ready for His coming so that we can enjoy these blessings. We want to belong to the Lord. We want to enjoy the blessings. We want to be in the covenant. We want to belong to this kingdom. We want to be on the Lord's side and belong to Him. And so they flood to John confessing their sins so that they are ready for the coming of the Lord. I will just underline to you, nothing that Isaiah said was anything about miraculous spiritual gifts. That's not even in the purview. The idea is God's going to bless again. You've been devastated by your sins. But when the Spirit comes, God will restore His people. God will bring His people back into Him. He will bless them. He will restore them. He will bring them in as His children. They will belong to His covenant. And they will enjoy being citizens of this kingdom. And let me end then by saying, that message did not stand out there to only John's mouth. Peter stands up. And he says the exact same thing. As they're convicted by their sins, as Peter preaches his sermon in Acts 2, and they ask, men and brethren, what should we do? Peter's answer sounds just like the message of John. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received His word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What was promised to Israel was also promised here to those who were afar off. Gentiles as well. And notice that same message. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And in the same way, 
It's not simply saying, okay, so what you need to do is some kind of sacramental or ritualistic act. You just need to get thrown in water. Just as John was proclaiming a message about turning your heart back to God. Get your heart right with God. Change your ways. Transform your life by the power of God. So also now, here is the very same message. Is that repentance and baptism is the response of the heart that is convicted by sin, desiring cleansing and reconciliation with God. What we are doing is recognizing we have a sin problem as well. And we are in need of cleansing. John proclaimed it saying, there's one coming after me who's going to do this. Get ready for his coming because he's going to reverse the curse of sin and bring you into his kingdom so that you can enjoy the blessings of God. Peter and the apostles stand up and say, that one has already come and died for your sins. And now it's up to you to enjoy that entrance as well. It's the same message. John's on the front end saying he's coming. The apostles are on the back end saying he already came. And you need to get right before God. You need to repent of your sins so that you can belong to Him. Our submission to God is what shows that we have this transformed heart. Can I underscore that? Submission is the way that we show repentance. Submission is the fruit of what repentance is. If I have a transformed heart, then I will do what God has called me to do. I will submit to His will. Repentance is not, you're right, I have all these sins, I'm going to confess my sins, and now tomorrow I'm going to just get back to doing what I want to do and thank God for forgiving my sins. That's not submission and that's not repentance. Repentance is a picture of a heart that's truly crushed by sins. That stands before God and recognizes I have a sin problem that I cannot solve. There is nothing that I can do to fix this. I am doomed if I do not receive the mercy of God. And what God then is offering is this massive reversal. If you will submit to God... And you will no longer follow your heart and your ways and your desires, but submit to God's ways and God's desires. He says, I'll take you from being slaves to sin to being forgiven. I'll set you free. I'll set you free from the curse of sin, that you no longer have to be slaves to sin. You can now be slaves to righteousness. You can now be children of God. You can belong to the kingdom of God rather than belonging to the kingdom of darkness, awaiting judgment that is to come. What a blessing it is that God says, I have come and I've given you this covenant and I've given you this kingdom and I've given you these blessings. I am reversing all that we have done in rebellion to God. He's reversed it all. And he says, now will you submit your heart to God? Will you truly, from your heart, turn away from a life of sin? That you'll see that without God, we are the desolate field. We are the wilderness. We are worthy of judgment. But God has come to the rescue. God has come to save through His Son, 
and our Savior Jesus Christ. And the call is to us the very same message that we repent before He comes. Get your life ready. Get hearts right. Submit to the will of God and follow Him with all of your heart. Don't think of repentance or confession or baptism as some kind of checklist of things to do. These things are the result of a crushed heart that desires to obey God. Men and brethren, what can we do to be saved? I will do anything, Lord. Tell me what I can do to access your mercy and grace. God says, get your heart right. Turn away from those sins. And submit to the waters of baptism to enjoy the forgiveness of sins. You can do that right now. Won't you come?